Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everyone. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guests today are Richard Brown, Chief Technology Officer at R3, and Todd McDonald, Chief Strategy Officer at R3. Our subjects will include the evolution of blockchain technology, it's in some ways unexpected adoption by the regulated markets, whether collaboration accelerates progress or slows it down, the importance of interoperability, and how to build a business case for investing in change. Richard and Todd, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having us, Dominic. And it's also it's a pleasure to be shoulder to shoulder with Richard. We're normally not in the same office, so we're uh, Richard is visiting us in New York uh, this week. And so we're excited to be able to do this interview uh, together. Yeah, thanks for having us. Looking forward to it. Mike, well, I'm delighted that uh, we were able to bring you together for this. <laughs> exactly. As I indicated in my opening remarks, uh, blockchain technology evolves. It was originally developed as a direct response to the failures of the existing financial system. That is to say, these layers of intermediaries connected by these antiquated processes that require all these endless and successive reconciliations of data between the various parties to a transaction. That in turn imposes very high and often uh, opaque transaction costs, but also capital and liquidity costs uh, on movements of value in the, in the markets. In other words, uh, blockchain technology always understood right from the outset that the chief problem in institutional finance as it had evolved to that point lay not within financial firms, but actually between them, all those reconciliations I referred to. So here we are now more than a decade on, um, how does enterprise blockchain technology measure up against that original blockchain vision of peer-to-peer -peer trading, automation of workflows, value transfers recorded in these transparent shared ledgers? Where have we got to? I've actually been pretty pleased by how far we've got. I mean, we've got nowhere near where I thought and think we can get to. Uh, but um, you know, ten years on from when you like the idea of applying blockchain tech to to finance was was first mooted, um, you know, we now see it deployed. Whether it's for you know, workflow, um, so like you know, market level workflow optimization in um, in Italy with a sponsor project being used to speed up the processing of pensions in um, in Australia, something I never would have thought of. And then and then you know announcements and deployments by the Swiss Stock Exchange, DTCC, Euroclear, um, and others. So uh, and then it's used um, in some early stage central bank digital currency projects, such as in the UAE. So I've been you know, been really pleased by by how it's how it's been. Deployed. Deployed. But perhaps one thing, um, if we go back, you said uh, you know, blockchain was, was, was mooted as a solution to all these problems. And, and in the enterprise space, that's true. But I think what people miss is you know, that wasn't why the original blockchain or the public ones were first uh, introduced and invented. Um, if you look at, say, you go, even go back to the original Bitcoin white paper, the it's, it's not written in these terms, but it's strongly implied that what they were trying to build were new censorship resistant networks, a new ability to hold value and transfer it between parties without anybody being able to stop you or not necessarily know that even that you've done it. And, and so they work, they, they work the way they do to solve that problem. 
the 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 insight, if you like, or the you know the segue from that world to the institutional world was to say, well, hang on, these networks look quite interesting. They've been so designed to solve one problem: you know, censorship resistance, you know, unstoppable movement of of value. And to do that, they they have the following properties: you know, these are networks that are deployed at the level of a whole market. Everybody who's connected to them sees the same thing, or at least the things they're allowed to see are the same as everybody else's. There's no reconciliation. Everything's always in sync. And so the, the thought process was, well, if I had one of those, what else could I use it for? And that was then the, the stepping stone to, to the application of that type of technology to the regulated financial markets for inter-firm workflow, um, for the sh secure, reliable sharing of data, and for the, um, the modeling and, um, and digitization of assets. Um, so there's a lot further to go, but I've been really pleased by how far we've got so far. And, and I, maybe just to add to that, I think, you know, when, when we started R3, uh, we we were trying to bring these innovations to uh, to the existing market. So, in my background was in OTC markets and FX and rates, and it it was it was using that as an inspiration, right? So the the way that I think it's important to be able to apply technology to how markets would like to work. So you mentioned you know Dominic around more peer to peer. You know the markets are quite peer to peer today. Uh, in a lot of markets are. So how can we map to that in a way that that makes sense, especially for for large regulated financial institutions uh, that are part of those markets? But do it in a way where we're, um, we are leveraging the things like in intercompany workflows and the ability to to know that a an execution can also be a trade settlement. How can we bring some of this together to collapse? Some of the front, middle, and back office process that that we've all lived with in in our careers, um, and then I think looking forward, where we're starting to see now is kind of coming back around again to the original promise of what crypto was looking at, which is creating uh, digital value that can move around the globe. Now, once we're starting to see this install base of of a foundation of a, of a hopefully a new digital capital market and a, a real pickup in okay. Can we actually then pick this back up and see how we can tokenize assets and value and currency and have it operate in a way where these regulated financial institutions can leverage it and also participants can uh, can be part of these networks where they know that they're getting the benefit without introducing new risks. So I think that's what is exciting me for where we've gotten to today and also a little bit of where we potentially can, can get to in the, in the next couple of years. As you've both said in your in your different ways, it's surprising in a way that the the traditional regulated markets picked up these cryptocurrency methodologies and asked themselves the question, uh, how can we apply these methods to problems that or issues that we have in our own markets? And they've been quite inventive at that tokenization, which you just mentioned, Todd, is the most obvious instance of that. But it seems to me the fact there is instances, now there's more than one instance of these technologies being applied by regulated firms, perhaps those silos in the traditional markets are now starting to reproduce themselves in the tokenized world, whereas the, the cryptocurrency markets, the cryptocurrency world is entirely comfortable with a single operating model for every type of asset, every type of activity. Do you worry that the regulated markets are in some ways foregoing, and they might be foregoing it inadvertently as well as advertently, is the, or are the regulated markets foregoing the benefits of having what you might call a single programmable platform, a single design? Do you ever worry about that? 
but maybe I'll I'll, I'll start because it, so uh, whether whether markets need a single design or a single sort of unified ledger, um, I, potentially that's that's maybe mistaking what a solution can be versus what problem we're trying to solve, right? So can we get to what that is trying to achieve in, in a different way? And and I think it's uh, I think it is important though, Dominic. There is a risk currently that we may be sort of repeating the sins of the past. There is a risk that because of potentially the, the challenges in implementing this type of technology within regulated markets, we do recreate silos and in effect, potentially create new forms of value in the digitized format that are uh, islands that are not, are not able to be accessed or, 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 or mobilized or, or used as collateral. Um, that's definitely a risk. Uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about potentially what we're working on, what the industry potentially hopefully can work on to, to avoid that. But I think taking the, I guess, the, the the crypto model of saying, here is a set of sort of short set of, of rules or parameters that everyone must agree to. And then once we agree to that, step two is we all can harmoniously come onto one, one ledger is a difficult one. Instead, can we look at how markets operate today, which is, which is, you know, a mix of listed in OTC markets, a list of or a, a a mix of different ways that that business gets done today, and it's really a network of regulated networks that is stitched together by lots of intermediaries and, and lots of plumbing. So, how do we improve that as opposed to try and in effect force everyone into a single hmm. network to rule them all? Um, but I know you, you. I mean, Richard, you have a direct experience in how this has worked in in within R3 and, and within the industry. Well, well, quite. And I guess I'm one of those who, for, I guess, for several years, um, you know, I beat my head against the wall trying to trying to force customers to put everything on the same network. And, and eventually, um, one has to accept that when the market tells you something several times, maybe the market's the one that's right and you're the one that's wrong. Um, but but, why, but why, why, did I, you know, why did I and others think that the regulated markets would follow the same path as, as, as the public networks? Well, I, mean, I don't think it was a mad thing to, um, to, to expect. Um, and the fact they haven't has caused benefit, given them benefits, but also caused some issues. So if I make it concrete, I'll just take an example of one of the, the, the public network. So public cryptocurrency network, Ethereum, there's one Ethereum mainnet, as they call it. Yes, there are forks, there are other platforms, but if somebody says they're deploying an asset onto Ethereum, everybody knows what you mean. It's one large network with lots of different assets and smart contracts and DeFi protocols and all the rest deployed onto it. And it has some benefits for those in that permissionless world who do so, because if you, you, know, if you trade an asset, one asset for another in one contract, you know, it can pop out and then you can use it in a different context somewhere else. It's, it's like they're one big integrated um, pool of liquidity in, in some ways. But in order to do that, everybody on that network has to conform to a set of, you know, of, of non-negotiable rules. You know, everybody has to agree what version of the software they're going to use. There's, it, it, it's implicit rather than explicit, but there's, you know, there's very specific governance that, that applies. There's a whole bunch of uh, you know, unstated, unless you're into the details, into the technical details, unstated rules that everybody follows. You move to the regulated world, that's really, really hard to sell because each of these regulated institutions is, is in a specific geography, in a specific jurisdiction. They've got their own regulators, they've got their own business models, they've got shareholders or, or, or other people on their boards driving a particular timeline. You know, they, they, they don't have the ability to be anywhere near as, as, a, as a commutative to that, um, that, that, shared, that shared governance. And so perhaps in hindsight, it's no surprise that each of these networks, to a large extent, has evolved separately. There's a separate network for each asset 
asset class or for each um, application. Um, it's allowed us to get things deployed quicker than would otherwise have been the case, um, but it does then create the question of how do you integrate them together and how can they interoperate? Um, but the um, but it, it's one of those, it is exactly, as you say, one of those situations where what we thought would happen turned out not to be um, not, not to be what did happen. Um, and, and so you, know, you get one benefit and then some of the things that aren't quite right, you then come and fix subsequently. Uh, the naturalistic fallacy was passing through my mind there, as you said, Bridget, um, you know, what what did happen isn't what we expected to happen. And, and of course, what happens isn't necessarily what ought to happen. Uh, you know, Todd, you put it another way, really saying, you know, the, the market kept giving me this message and eventually I had to stop trying to tell them the answer. I don't know whether markets are like customers and the market is always right. I Somehow I, I doubt it. And the reason I'm having these slightly dark thoughts is because it occurs to me that maybe the market or the institutions in the market don't actually want uh, that single set of rules, that interoperability between different networks. Because if we look at what's happening in, in the token markets, we find individual banks are building individual tokenization engines in-house, hoping to keep their existing business. We see exchanges doing very similar things, building these competing token platforms, albeit without really any tokens being issued onto them, but certainly keeping uh, themselves in that game. You've got all these tokenization projects which are taking place inside individual asset classes in bonds, in private equity, in real estate, and so on, or in different financial functions, in payments, securities financing, uh, stock loan, whatever it is. So it's a very fragmented marketplace when you look at the regulated capital markets. And so the point where R3 began as a, as a collaborative venture has given way now to this dozens of competing subscale projects. And my dark thought is, you know, is there a risk here that the institutions are, again, inadvertently or overtly trying to build, like the internet pioneers did before them, like, you know, AOL did back in the 1990s, a set of walled gardens. So to put my question plainly, is that is that resistance to that single set of rules, that 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 unified ledger, that single programmable platform, is it actually deliberate, or is it just a political fallout of the reality of these marketplaces? What what was going to happen? I feel pretty passionate about this one, Richard. So let me let me let me get started. And maybe Dominic, I am a hopeless optimist here, but um, if if you think about um, maybe use it as an example. So the work that that six exchange uh, embarked on and with six digital exchange SDX, they uh, very specifically are looking to create a digital end-to-end -end digital infrastructure for the Swiss financial system. And in working with them, they were very specifically looking to obviously have control of their, uh, of their roadmap, control of how they stand up this infrastructure and how it integrates into their existing um, ex their existing ecosystem. At the same time, and they've been very specific and, and, and if you, very public about this, they are looking for the largest reach that they can have for their members, for the largest reach into other markets, and also to allow for um, those that are that are seeking uh, investment and seeking funding to be able to access into their, the ecosystem that they're building. So it's really not about one or the other control versus interoperable reach. They're looking to, to find that efficient frontier between the two. So it's always been the case that there is 
a desire for uh, for there to be more access to these products, more access to these pools of liquidity. And I think that we 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 have seen very uh, very strong desire for that. You are correct that within tokenization, there have started to be some efforts of of uh, independent efforts. But what I have observed, and in particular over the last year, is a realization by those that have invested already and those that are looking to provide services that that this is potentially not the right path. That how can we try and bring uh, bring this back into a network of regulated networks? so that uh, we can get the benefits of, of uh, liquidity um, and get the benefits of, of the new infrastructure that is being provided by some of these participants. So I think what you're going to start to see, and, and I, I would point out uh, at Cybos recently, there was a paper that was released by DTCC, yeah. uh, Euroclear, and Clearstream, and, and the folks at SDX were very supportive of the paper as well, which is saying we as an industry, and in particular market infrastructure, has an incredible role to play to be a foundation for a regulated tokenized future. So that I think is the opportunity to try and, and now that we are starting to see these capabilities being built up and seeing things like SDX, which is, which is an end-to-end -end, uh, digital exchange where you can issue a digital bond and have it settle in central bank digital currency with the Swiss National Bank, having that be part of a wider network of regulated networks is something that the industry, I think, wants. They're not trying to fight that. We just all have to work together to try and increase the chances of that being a reality. Yeah. And the only thing I'd add to that is completely agree. Todd's Todd's recurrent mantra about networks or regulated networks. Of course, that's that same terminology can be used. Network of networks can be used to define the internet. You know, the internet is not a single network. It is a collection of networks that connect together. They peer with each other, peer-to-peer, -peer, um, through peering agreements, where each network agrees with whom they're going to connect, and there's a set of standards that facilitate it. So, so it creates the illusion of a single global network where anyone can connect to anybody else. But in reality, it's implemented as a very large number of separate networks, sometimes on different technologies, um, that have been assembled into a network of networks. Um, and we're seeing the same thing happen in the digital asset space as well, I think. I'm interested, Richard, you, you bring up that question of standards, which strikes me on the face of it as being very much a, a second best to that unified ledger, that, that single design which we were talking about earlier. But the fact is we have these multiple networks that need to be connected in some way, and, and standards are, of course, the old world solution uh, <laughs> to, to, to linking those, those networks up. And um, you know they can obviously contribute to interoperability, but I, but I sometimes get depressed when I when I hear about standards because I look at the history of it. Uh, you, you know you've got Fix in the front office, you've got Swift in the back office, and you know they don't collaborate with each other. You've got uh, the payments industry, you know, transitioning to ISO twenty o two two, and the securities industry saying, well, we'll transition to ISO twenty o two two if you can make it look like ISO fifteen o two two. And the, and the FX and money markets say, well, we're never going to go there. Thanks very much. And then you've got all these competing standards which are proliferating, uh, not just in the traditional markets, but actually in the in the um, the blockchain markets as well to try and enable interoperability between the different layer one blockchain protocols. So the history of what's going on here strikes me that it's actually very challenging to get regulated firms to agree to communicate 
quite apart from the fact this is in some ways a huge defeat for blockchain technology to be to even having this discussion, but it's very difficult to get the participants in a marketplace, whether they're on a blockchain network or something else, to actually collaborate enough to adopt common standards to enable those data exchanges to take part. So my question is, what, what part are standards now playing in your own thinking at R3 about the way these markets, blockchain-based markets, are going to evolve? Are they, do you see them as very important or as a transitional stage? I, I think, so had I been answering that question, say, five or ten years ago, I would have said transitional stage. But I think it was the old me that was wrong rather than the, the present me. Um, and, and 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 to see why, you make, you make the point about you know, the whole 50022, 20022, um, um, sort of like the time it's taken to do that transition. But of course, that's that's the key point. You can, the standard provides, it'd be like a buffering point or a, like an impedance matching point that allows different organizations to move at different speeds and yet nevertheless be able to, to collaborate and communicate. So so we if we look at the, the public, cryptocurrency networks there are some examples of, of of projects being successfully deployed on the same network you know i think the ethereum mainnet is, is an example of that but it's just one of many networks so even that acknowledged success is not is not dominant there are other networks with which it has to connect um, and because you've got so much happening on one network you hit performance issues so then they have to go to layer two and things like that um, and it is not a given that that approach is always superior. So if we look at um, the Bitcoin network, people don't talk about Bitcoin as much these days. It used to be utterly dominant. One of the reasons I would argue that people don't talk about it too much is, is that network and that community has in effect, and I'll probably get loads of abuse now, but has in effect atrophied uh, because it was so hard to agree amongst that community on a set of steps that everybody could get behind to upgrade the network. And so the network um, protocol didn't evolve and a lot of the traffic and a lot of the value moved elsewhere. So, so there is a flip side to having everybody follow the same protocol and follow all the same standards, which is everybody has to move at once. So you then have the problem that those who want to move fast and innovate have to wait for people to catch up before they can. You have people who are perfectly happy, stable, they've got a viable business model that doesn't need to upgrade, who are suddenly told they have to upgrade if they want to stay on the network. And you end up with this very difficult political process of keeping everybody on the same place, on the same page. And in an environment where innovation is happening, happening rapidly, that gets even, that gets even harder. The alternative is to say, actually, let each project, let each let each network progress and, and act um, at its own speed, and then we'll talk about how they can connect, which is where interoperability comes in. So it's um, it's an enabler of that of that multi multi speed approach rather than uh, rather than a downside. I didn't see that in the early days. You know, it, it took several years of working on this before I realized the benefits that these standards provide. Todd used the phrase uh, "working together." Uh, to solve problems. Uh, you, Richard, have just talked about keeping people on the same page. And I think there is, at least publicly, a, a growing appetite in the securities industry in particular uh, to collaborate. It was a theme chosen by SWIFT for Cybos this year. It was a, a theme at the ISSA event uh, back in the spring. And the thinking behind that is is pretty clear you know when, when you're in bearish markets collaborating can appear to cut the costs cut the risks of uh, automating processes digital digitalizing processes digitizing data and so it might even perhaps create some new opportunities if you if you certainly for new entrants if it lowers the barriers to entry for for people to compete in a marketplace and lower the cost even for incumbents of producing 
the digital data their various AI machines are going to consume. So the case for, for greater collaboration, for working together, for being on the same page is, is pretty clear. But I wonder, you've just indicated, Richard, that, that your views about this have, have changed somewhat. But as you look back over the history of collaboration and indeed non-collaboration, in the Bitcoin case you referred to, in the blockchain industry, where do you think the balance now lies between collaboration on the one hand, competition on the other, in the uh, established capital markets of today? So, you know, it, it does come back to incentives always. And what is what are market participants incentivized to focus on today? Um, we are living in a different world. The cost of capital has changed dramatically over the last two years. And I think that, that aligns quite well with, I think, this theme of collaboration or this theme of, of better connect, connectedness of these pools of liquidity. Participants are incredibly focused on the topic of collateral where, you know, where am I pre-funding certain venues? How can I get a better use of, out of that, uh, the, the funding that I have put forward? Because the costs are dramatically different than they were two to three years ago. So I think that's a very big driver on the incentivizing market participants to try and figure out novel ways to, uh, to have better collateral mobility. And if you look at not just what, what's happening within, say, the enterprise blockchain space across market infrastructure, but you look across the other market sort of structure and technology um, moves over the last year or two. It's very, very specifically targeted at how can we improve um, knowledge of where my collateral uh, resides? How do I understand how I can leverage that collateral? Um, this is across capital markets, payments, um, this is a huge theme, and I think it's really going to um, help accelerate because we, like, if you think of it differently, R3 was was founded with potentially uh, a naive notion that large numbers of global investment banks would want to collaborate together to try and bring something forward. Um, that can hold true if you align incentives enough. They'll never be perfectly aligned, but there has to be enough alignment there. And I think the current environment actually does help quite a bit with continued collaboration, not for, not an altruistic one, but a really self-interested one for the participants. So I think, I think it's very helpful. Incentives is, is a powerful point. And you've explained very clearly, Todd, about how more efficient mobilization of collateral can lower the cost of funding a bank, particularly in, in a high interest rate uh, environment like today. And it's, this has been my experience talking to established financial institutions about their adoption of blockchain. Efficiency has been a very big part of that right from the beginning, and it's been a big part of uh, the, the collaborative projects they've they've worked on. And many of the projects which I have tracked over the last few years were, were measured largely by the, the cost savings they uh, would ostensibly or actually generate, particularly in, in, on the operational side of the business. Uh, which to some extent meant the industry ignored the savings, which you've just referred to, Todd. Those, those savings can be generated by blockchain technologies between firms. Those firms are kind of focused on how much money is this going to save us internally. And they've taken a long time, I think, to reach the point that you've been talking about, uh, Todd, but they can get the benefits of that increased collateral liquidity, 
the capital savings, the savings in the funding of the bank. And I was, as recently as this year, the the uh, the DLT and the Real World Survey, which which uh, Barney Nelson runs uh, in conjunction with ISSA, said that found that only 13%, like you know, one in eight of the blockchain projects, the members of the respondents to that survey were involved with, um, that's just investment banks, were actually focused on liquidity. When, when you talk to custodian banks, it was like 9% of them. The exchanges and CSDs, it was 6%. The asset managers, it was 0%. So they've still got quite a long way to go to wake up to that, the liquidity benefits of engaging with blockchain networks. I know, Todd, you, you've described yourself as a, a kind of inveterate uh, optimist here. Uh, am I sounding too pessimistic here and have, have a lot of things? Do you detect real momentum now among established financial institutions to, to start garnering the benefits of greater efficiency between financial institutions, getting your collateral being an obvious starting point because it's scattered all in lots of banks and CSDs all over the planet? Well, I think Dominic, you know, I'm happy to provide my positivity therapy to you <laughs> after this. Um, so maybe maybe this is a good time to talk about an example, one project that we've worked with for a while. And, and then maybe Richard, you can talk about how we're looking to leverage interoperability to, to help move that forward in the industry. So so I guess, Dominic, this has been a theme, maybe a little bit of an undercurrent of a theme around balance sheet <laughs> and how mm -hmm. you can optimize it. But um, high quality liquid asset exchange, HQLAX has yeah. been around for, for a while, and, it, and they, we were very proud to be able to support them early days, even with office space and obviously on the technology side, and, and we're I'm incredibly proud with what that team has, has accomplished. And what they're trying to do is to use this technology so that firms can uh, swap um, baskets of securities amongst them to better optimize what high-quality liquid assets they hold on balance sheet. And so... It is a great example of a market need, the ability to do it with new technology while still integrated into existing systems. So leveraging, working with underlying custodians like Clearstream, Neuroclear and others um, to make it as easy as possible for financial institutions to leverage this benefit. And what this was uh, obviously an acute need for European banks initially, but increasingly more and more banks are having, and, and I would say corporates are going to be having a similar need for the ability to initially have collateral swaps happen. So I I tokenize the basket of securities. I swap that token, give it from me to you, and it is recognized as being um, transferred from my balance sheet to yours. And there's a lot of underlying magic there where we can change the, con the contents of the underlying basket without having to recall the token. All the goodness of having an integrated distributed ledger plugged in underneath that that fits within existing systems. What they are looking to do and what others are in the conversations that I've been increasingly having is how can we build and chunk up for that, chunk up from that to unlock uh, further things like sec lending and repo. Um, and so one of the ways they would need to be able to offer that to their clients is how can we settle or exchange this token as of that represents a basket of securities? How can we exchange that for something that represents actual value um uh, like within a repo agreement 
Yeah, and um, and this I guess this ties several things together. So so we've got exactly as Todd says on HQLAX, there are these um, are these digital collateral receipts, um, and you can exchange them, you know, delivery versus delivery, sort of basket versus basket. Um, so next question, as Todd says, what happens if you want to exchange one of these baskets for for cash? Well, right now there is no cash token on the HQLAX ledger, but there is a parallel project on a different technology, as it happens, uh, called Finality, uh, which you can think of as as providing. Um, um, as, as close to CBDC as you can get without it having been directly issued by the central bank. Let's call it synthetic CBDC. Um, and that, that could provide the, the cash leg. Um, so, so immediately, we've got an example of two networks that if we could bring them together, we could achieve this, this DVP and unlock things like repo. Now, one question might be, well, why on earth are they on different technologies? But if we then think through what it has taken to get each of these projects to the point where they're live or about to go live, on the HQLAX case, so there's like the linkages to, to, to Clearstream and others, there's the rulebook associated with that, there's the legal opinions about um, you know, balance sheet treatment on, on the HQLA side. And then on the finality side, you know, this is um, going to be regulated, I suspect, as like you know, as a financial market infrastructure. It has its own rulebook. Um, there's like, you know, the question of, of, of domicile. These are uh, two, the, 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 the interface between technology business models and, and regulation is is subtle and it's different for each of them. The idea that they would have to have coordinated to choose the same technology, the same rulebook, the same governance. Um, you know, we still be talking about you know maybe they'll go live in several years because they were able to run at their own pace. They're able to, to go much faster. Um, and so the interesting thing to me was last year. So it's, you know, it's this um, this is like this is this is like this is now history. Those two organisations you know they wanted to do this DVP um, and because of the way the platforms work, they were able to implement a protocol that worked. Bilaterally, they didn't need to to engage all three. They didn't need to, um, to to go through a standards body in the first instance. They were just able to make it work. But the interesting thing is why, to, at least one of the interesting things to me is why did they have to build one themselves rather than use an off-the-shelf standard? Um, and the answer is because of the, these points I just made that you know, there are two different rule books that have to be reconciled. There are questions about well, how does this, how does the technology, so the technical protocol, how does that, what, what does that do under certain legal situations? Yeah, if there's a bankruptcy on one side, what happens if assets are held immobilized in a lock and interest is paid? Who gets it? The the pure technical protocols hadn't engaged with those questions and. So so couldn't be used. And so they directly um, worked with their lawyers and their technologists and, and produced a protocol that worked. And then the final point to this is, of course, is to Todd's point about incentives, is um, they don't want to have to then maintain that into, in perpetuity. So that then creates the incentive to work through a standard organization openly. Our three others, um, our partners at Adhara, are, are working with all these groups to say what has been learned from this, um, what has been learned from this experience. Can we turn this into an open standard so that the cost of, um, of maintaining it is borne by everybody rather than just one firm? But they didn't begin with a sort of just, just like, a, maybe like an abstract academic desire to do interoperability. It was a really sort of like hard-headed need to bring these two networks together. The lawyers, the technologists, the business people figured out what was needed. And then the incentives kick in to say, we want this to be an open standard so we can share the cost and, and get the benefit rather than just doing it for the sake of it or because somehow we believe open is, is inherently good. Okay, I, I get that open standards can emerge from normal market processes. People have financial material incentives to, to generate these things to solve uh, real problems. It prompts a, a thought in my mind, though, about uh, public versus private networks. I suspect we'd had this conversation a few years ago. We would have been talking entirely about, about private networks because people wanted to be confident who the counterparty might be on the other side. And I now detect that that debate is shifting back in favor of 
of public networks. And if networks are public, it's a reasonable assumption that that will enable liquidity to grow a lot faster than by trying to create lots of private networks, which must somehow be made uh, interoperable. And I do, as I say, detect this institutional willingness to use public networks. I, I, an OMFIF survey last year really surprised me where it found these, these major supranational bond issuers, a clear majority said, yeah, we're fine with you know, issuing bonds onto public Ethereum networks, that's okay with us. Uh, and again, that DLT in the real world survey, which I referred to a few minutes ago, also records that uh, majorities of respondents are very comfortable with public blockchains across almost every, every asset class. So my question is, do you detect a similar shift of sentiment away from, yes, we must be private towards, yep, we're okay with, with public? And what do you, if you do, what do you think that is, do you think that's going to accelerate, as I assume you will agree with me, liquidity and interoperability between, between networks? Uh, so I, I think I'll start. So, you know, there is often a debate that's framed as a binary of, say, public versus private. Um, and I, at least I can say what I've been observing over the last year. There, there has been an increased focus on how can, how can I, or as a user, how can I create an asset of value that is regulatable? That is really what I think participants are looking for. Um, so implementation of say a say an open public crypto network where it's anyone can join as a validator um, all the way to an extreme of say existing systems today there is there are a lot of different options in between those two but it really comes down to what is what is the need if you're issuing a bond um, or if you are looking to have say tokenized deposit that represents maybe a settlement asset that those those tokenized assets, especially when they are, as the crypto people like to call, real-world assets, even though using RWA for that acronym drives me insane, um, those need to be have the ability to be regulatable, not just to please regulators, but so that issuers and investors can be able to leverage them in a way that that that, that is straightforward. So when we speak to uh, buy-side firms, when we speak to banks, um, that is really what they're looking at. How can I, how can I take the benefit of tokenization, and do it in a way where the things that I am either tokenizing or the things that I am consuming that are have been tokenized, can be regulatable <laughs> and fit into how I manage my entire book today. I think that's the important um, aspect here. And you know, public-private or public permission, private permission. It's I don't know. To me, it's a bit more of a label thing. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we're we're very comfortable with with interoperability with both you know the work we're doing yeah. uh, doesn't um, doesn't discriminate um one thing I've, I've noticed is in terms of there's always about there's always that i guess the economic concept you know revealed preferences what people say and what they do um, and you're right a lot of our clients and, and prospects talk about interoperability with uh, with public networks as something that they care about which is of course really important you need to have that option you need to know that that's going to be possible in terms of what they actually do right now and the majority of them are, are deploying to private networks or to walled gardens within the, the public networks uh, but we're opinionated on that one of the advantages of, of the idea of a network of regulated networks is you can for any given problem choose the right platform the right network for that problem knowing that these things will interoperate 
Um, there was, if you like, you know, between the public and private worlds a few years ago, it felt something like a holy war, because if you believed that there would be all assets would be on one network, you necessarily then had to have the debate, well, is it your network versus a competitor's? And then at the macro level, is it a public network versus a private network? The, you know, the acceptance, realization and embrace of the idea of, you know, use the right tool for the job and then connect them means that becomes a lot less emotional than it used to be. This is my penultimate question. We promised we would talk about uh, building a, a business case. Now, obviously, to go back to, to Todd's example of, of more efficient use of collateral, it would be great if that took off the incentive to the business case would kind of make itself because your collateral everywhere would be usable anywhere. The cost of funding your bank would go down, your capital ratios would go down. It's It's a clear business case. Yet, I keep hearing stories of firms actually struggling internally to build business cases for investing in blockchain. And the kind of reasons you come up against are uh, actually much less to do with, oh, well, it's very difficult to generate the liquidity you're talking about. It's difficult to get the interoperability going. It's very familiar issues like, well, we've got all these assets sitting on these different platforms. The systems don't talk to each other. The law isn't clear. The regulators haven't pronounced on this. So I'm a bit uncertain about whether we can do it at all. How do we integrate this with our counterparties' systems? Isn't there a risk we might get locked into some particular blockchain technology? And then you've got dozens of other projects all over the bank looking for various forms of budget to support the ambitions of, of groups within that in that bank. How for our three, you know, as, as an enterprise blockchain provider, how do you you must encounter these these obstacles and concerns all the time. How do you overcome them? How do you allay those those concerns, those excuses, those fears? I can I can give a um, hopefully this answer doesn't come across as as trite, but 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 Dominic, you said something really interesting um, in, in 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 the question around being able to make a business case for for doing a blockchain project or <laughs> or where's that effect? And of course that's that that's the warning sign. You're a prospect or a client who's looking for advice and help on doing that. Already you know that there's a problem here that has to be addressed because you know you look at some of the standout successes, um, and I always come back to the one in Italy because you know it's, it's close to my heart, but the Spencer project, you know, it runs on Cordra, it runs on a blockchain, but that isn't where its value comes from. Well, that isn't, you don't need to mention that in order to convey its value. You know, moving from a once a month manual reconciliation process to one that happens automatically every night between every branch of every bank in Italy. You know, the, the value comes from the problem that was being solved and, um, and the, 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 um, you know, the reduction of risk or the reduction of cost, whatever it may be. So, so, so the, the underlying project has to have a rationale. And then for us as a, if you like, as you know, our three with our vendor hat on, you know, it's our job with our with our prospects to explain to them or to convince them that solving that problem which needs to have a standalone business case solving that problem with our architecture rather than the competing one would be superior either because it can be deployed more quickly or it would be for lower cost or it allows them to gain gain other benefits but but you're absolutely right you know if someone was looking for a business case to deploy a database you kind of look at them as if they were a bit odd um, and, mm -hmm. and and you're right we still see that with with blockchain um, and those kinds of those projects are absolutely almost always the ones that tend to succeed yeah the mm -hmm. just you know fall in love with the problem, right? And one other example I, I'd like to point out is uh, where are there problems that that a blockchain architecture can potentially uniquely solve? Yeah. So an example is another company that uh, works with us is Fintium, and they're looking to address uh, intraday FX swaps. So 
I left FX about 10, 12 years ago. Intraday FX swaps didn't even exist. It wasn't, an, it wasn't a problem that banks thought they had until potentially regulators told them they had that problem. But now if you're looking to manage uh, your um, manage that liquidity on an hourly basis, as opposed to um, for, you know, doing Tomnex swaps or overnight swaps, the ability to bring settlement as close as possible to the execution and to reduce the amount of fails you have on getting actual delivery of currency into your Nostro, that's incredibly important. And so having a platform that can bring that together where the where the execution and the settlement are as closely uh, coupled as possible is a real benefit. Um, and it's a direct pain point for, for banks. Um, so I think those are the types of examples that we have to stay focused on because if as an industry, we aren't falling in love with the problem, but just you know trying to peddle the blockchain solution that we're will be we will actually be on your corner of being uh, being the pessimist and not the optimist. With my final question, I hope we can give everyone listening some idea of, of touched on this, you know, how far we've come, uh, and and where we're all heading towards. You at R3 have a very clear vision of the future. It's this, it's this open, this trusted, this enduring digital economy. My question is, what progress do you believe we've made towards that vision so far? And what are the problems, what are the obstacles that lie between where we are now and the realization of that vision in the near to medium term future? So I, you know, obviously, uh, as as a potentially as an optimist and an and entrepreneur, always thinking that things will be uh, take less time than they do. Uh, we are, I, I am incredibly excited that the marketplace is coming around to staying focused on where we can create new products and create new capabilities within tokenization. So we've talked a lot about tokenization of collateral, and we haven't touched at all on digital currency or central mm -hmm. digital currency in a lot of the products mm -hmm. that we are seeing, working on quite feverishly here at R3. Uh, what we have seen is that I think initially there was potentially uh, this concept that things would be completely peer-to-peer, -peer, things would be uh, organized around a single network where everyone would uh, all participants, buy side, sell side, intermediaries would all join one sort of harmonious global network. Um, reality is always obviously going to be different. Uh, but if we, if we look where we are today, what excites me and what I think sets us up potentially for success in the near term is that, as you've mentioned, the banks have, have invested in this book, but market infrastructure is investing. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly important. Uh, FMIs, CSDs, central banks, having them put real money to work to uh, to implement this really new digital foundation for for markets is incredibly incredibly powerful. Uh, the 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 opportunity and risk will come in is how do the participants start to get involved and not just uh, the sell side but increasingly um, the buy side and the longer tail of market participants. So I think that's the opportunity that we have, um, and I think what's helpful is that it's not just about cost reduction because in life things do come down to fear and greed and usually uh, it is things that cost reduction is sort of like a, a fear of needing to save money. But if we can have an element of uh, unlocking new markets, unlocking and creating sort of new securitization, be able to securitize the cash flows in different ways, bring new product to market, 
that's when you're going to start to see people lean in. That's when it's not just going to be the banks looking to mutualize back offices. You're going to start to see buy side and sell side and others really jump in with two feet on tokenization across the value spectrum. So I think that's what's setting us up to try and get to this vision that we have where value can move freely, but participants and businesses can have the faith that when they do interact in this world, that business can be done safely. So that is that is the balance that we are trying to strike. And I think we can get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing to add to that. That's that's the vision. You don't want to give us some final thoughts, Richard, on how far we we have to go before the vision is realized. There's nothing we'll let you off the hook. Well, he's getting his he's he's uh buffing his crystal ball here. Uh-huh. Uh, well, so maybe not about the future, but just on that question about how far we've come, you know. Looking across not only the R3 projects, but our competitors, our peers, you know, there are live projects in multiple countries, multiple domains, multiple um, multiple uh, subcomponents of, of the financial industry. So, so, and these these projects are solving problems today, and they're live and they're growing. We figured out how to connect these networks. So, this problem we thought we had, which was these networks are, are isolated and therefore, you know, in quotes, they're doing it wrong. We realized, no, no, we misunderstood the reality of, of how these things grow, and we're showing how to connect them together and the technology works you know there's been a lot of um doubts about that in the past so the technology works these projects are delivering value and we figured out how to connect them so all the pieces are in place so yeah like todd um um, hugely hugely optimistic richard brown and todd mcdonald thank you very much for taking the time to share your knowledge your experience and your ideas with the members of future of finance thank you thank you